Welcome back to In the Queue, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I'm your co-host, Andrew. And as I get older, it gets more and more surprising to see young versions of actors that I'm familiar with. <laughs> and this movie mm. was no exception for that. Yeah, um, I know. I think I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, <laughs> this is Phil, your other co-host. And... Ken Russell continues to surprise me with every movie of his that I see. Most surprising of all is the fact that he can continue to make movies. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he's no longer alive, but when he did, he made a lot of movies, and they all are so bizarre. And and varied and very different from one another. Yeah. Uh, which I think we'll, we'll get into when we start talking about the film today. Uh, today's film is The Layer of the White Worm. It is brought to us by Drew. Say hi to everybody, Drew. Hi, everybody. Drew. Hey. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you might recognize that voice. It's because Drew has been on the podcast before to talk to us about a couple different movies. Uh, so we ha- all, all of which have been really strange movies. So uh, <laughs> we thank Drew for that because it's a lot of fun. Um, and this film, I don't think, is any exception to that rule. So we'll get to talking about the film in a second. But first, I want to tell you how you can find us on the web. First, you can find us by going to our website, www.in-the-q, that's the letter q.com, and there you can find everything that we post, as well as a comments section where you can leave comments about the podcast or leave comments about uh, uh, films you would like to see. You know, if you leave mm-hmm. a comment, you can come on the guest, uh, you can be a guest on the show, uh, just like Drew is today, and talk about whatever film it is. Uh, good, bad, indifferent, all of the above will work. You can do the same thing on our Facebook page by going to Facebook and searching for In the Queue, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. Uh, and you can like our Facebook page and you'll we'll fill up your feed with all of our posts. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at, at ITQ Podcast. That's our Twitter handle um, where uh, we, we will engage in conversation. And then lastly, you can find us by going on any of the podcast aggregating apps, iTunes being probably foremost among those, but also Things like uh, the podcast app or, or uh, Overcast aggregators. Mm-hmm. And uh, and subscribe to the podcast and you won't miss a single episode. Mm. We, we recommend it. Quite frankly. Am I missing anything, Phil? I think you nailed it. I nailed it. Great. Good to know. So, again, ladies and gentlemen, today's film is The Lair of the White Worm. From the director of Altered States and the creator of Dracula comes a new classic thriller with a bite. Ken Russell's The Lair of the White Worm, starring Sammy Davis of Hope and Glory, Catherine Oxenberg from TV's Dynasty, Amanda Donahoe, and Hugh Grant of Maurice. In a remote corner of present-day England, a young archaeologist named Angus Flint unearths a mysterious ancient skull and uncovers a horrifying pagan mysticism. When the skull suddenly disappears, strange things start to happen. And Angus begins to suspect the bizarre and serpentine Lady Sylvia Marsh. Together with his friends Mary and Lord James Dampton, Angus sets out to destroy the horrible white worm and his evil worshippers before they make a living sacrifice of the young virgin Eve. Peter Travers of People Magazine says, the Lair of the White Worm is a hoot of a horror film. Variety calls it an original, fun-filled nightmare. And Stuart Klein of Fox Channel 5 says, it's droll, kinky, fun, see it. 
slither into a labyrinth of terror and fun with the master of the bazaar, Ken Russell's The Lair of the White Worm. Wow. Uh, wow. There it is. Uh, I hope they the... do not make trailers like that anymore, do they? No, they don't. I feel like this is a new trailer that just has a retro feel. I mean, don't you do think? You think I so? mean, of all the movies, though, that Hugh Grant has made, they reference Maurice. But it seems like this this voiceover was recorded in the last 10 years, at least. I don't think so. You really I don't think so? Yeah, I mean, they're quoting Peter Travers when he was at People magazine. Oh, yeah, he's been at Rolling Stone for a long time. <laughs> like at least 20 years. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, I, I think that that is a genuine trailer from the 80s. Uh, yeah, well, this movie yeah. is 1988. Yeah, so. this, this movie is 1988. Um, and uh, I don't really need to summarize it like we normally do, because trailers at that time pretty much told you the, the gist of the plot, and that trailer just did. Um, and it did I a pretty good job of it. The last trailer that I've seen that mentioned a character from the film's name. Yeah, yeah. Like, and and that that mentioned Angus Flint four times, and the actor Peter Capaldi, who plays Angus Flint, is not a starring actor. <laughs> it, you know, the four names they mentioned, the quote unquote hero of the pick, is not mentioned in the in the as a. Yeah, it's a it's a very curious uh, it's a very curious thing. Uh, he, I guess, maybe they didn't think he was going anywhere. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're like, "This is a funny-looking guy. He's probably not gonna." You know, they named all the pretty people in the movie, um, so maybe they just they just didn't think that Peter Capaldi had had a shot. <laughs> yeah, well, he, you know, he hadn't yet uh, blossomed yet as an actor, I guess. Sure, sure. Uh, but I, he's not. A, I don't think he's an ugly. An ugly man, circa 1988. No, no, I don't. He's got, a, he's got a nice head of hair. Sure, yeah, he's got a nice head of hair. Um, and yeah, he's not an ugly dude, but he's not Hugh Grant. I mean, come on. Oh yeah, no argument there. Um, who, of course, was the person I was referencing in my my opening when you see young people. Actually, Peter Capaldi as well. Seeing both of them as young actors was a very um, curious experience because uh, they were both just starting out. They only had a few years of uh, credits to their names collectively uh, prior to this. Mm-hmm. So Drew, yeah, I think tell- Grant had done about five movies and Capaldi had done about six before this one. So they yeah. were pretty, pretty neck and neck new and fresh. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Drew, uh, tell us why the layer of the white worm? Why did you recommend this film to talk about on the podcast? Uh, I think uh, we were having a conversation about Ken Russell films on Facebook mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. People were just mentioning their favorites and why, and I mentioned how much I loved Lair of the White Worm. I said I could talk about it all day, and you're like, okay, then come on the show and talk about it. And I'm like, sure, I haven't talked to you guys in a year. Let's do this. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. What was the last one we talked We talked about... Dark City. Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Oh, yeah, that was a while ago. was the most recent one. Yeah, May 13th of 2016. Yeah, oh, man, Uh, still one of my faves. Uh, Yeah. Um, well, let's put it this way, Andrew, when, yeah. you know, you were probably fairly young when Dark City came out, uh, yeah, I and 18. I was probably the same age, not when, uh, Lair of the White Worm came out, but when I saw it, I was, yeah. I was, I had just dropped out of high school. Oh and, yeah. Uh, 
and when I saw this for the first time, I was hanging out with a, a group of women. We'd all were homeschooling together, and they had this thing for Hugh Grant. I guess Four Weddings and a Funeral had just come out. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, because uh, that was were, just after. That was only a few years after this. Yeah, Five years, they, I think. Uh, they really wanted to watch every Hugh Grant movie there was, and they got to this one, and <laughs> it did not have the desired effect. <laughs> I, however, fell in love with this Of film. course, of course. Yeah, I would I not say that this say is an aphrodisiac. With, uh, Amanda Donahoe. <laughs> I fell in love with Amanda Donahoe. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, the slinky, serpentine Amanda Donahoe. All uh, her teeth are the same size. It, was well, that your takeaway? Really pointy ones. Well, well, I feel like, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. that's the first thing I noticed when she smiled is that all of her, her teeth were very flat. They connected almost on a straight line, all of them, and they, they were all really tiny, like little kernels of corn. That's, uh,. That's what beautiful people. The, that's that's this is the the genetic lottery that they win, Phil. <laughs> yeah, all the things of Amanda Donahoe's you saw. I'm I'm glad that you focused in on her teeth. Well, that's just <laughs> all that. That's what I started with. Of course, of course. Um, so yeah, this movie is pure camp. Weird. Oh yeah, it's super strange. It's based on a uh, a Bram Stoker story novel. One of the above. It's a novel. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Um, it is. Let's let's put the the caveat of loosely based. Very. <laughs> yeah. Very loosely based. Yeah, fair Shortly enough. after fair. watching this, I said, "Oh, I want to read the source material." And I started, and it's very dry, not all that interesting. Mm. At least it wasn't to a a seventeen year old. And so, sure, uh, I may or may not have finished it, but I couldn't really tell you what the original source material was about, other than, you know, there's a a worm living under the house and it eats people. And I think everything blows up at the end. So, you know, <laughs> well then they, they stuck to most of the source <laughs> elements, right? Yeah. Um, they hit, they hit the big, the big nails on the head. I think Ken Russell was definitely delighting in his contribution of the bizarre dream sequence slash hallucination scenes. Oh yeah, which uh, which he likes to insert periodically in his movies, and and this film definitely features like, I mean, my feeling about Lair of the White Worm is that it's it's alternately quite boring, but then <laughs> very lurid and bizarrely fascinating, like in short bursts. Yeah, and there's these moments where, you know, there's been two characters talking to each other for minutes on end. And then, boom, all of a sudden, there'll be these, like, very brief uh, scenes of impalements, blood, yeah. rape, monsters, violence, lasting just for, like, a few seconds, almost as, like, to enliven the proceedings. And then it gets back to some of the more talky scenes. Um, yeah. And I, I thought the, the pacing of this movie is a little... It's... It's not quite camp enough for me. That's mm. how I feel about it. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, to to your your point, Phil, you brought up the the hallucinations, and I just want to talk briefly about mm -hmm. those because they were very interesting. They were really fascinating. The first of those hallucinations, when Eve touches uh, uh, Sylvia, the serpent lady, has come into the house of Angus. Who, who's archaeology student, he's dug up this gigantic skull 
uh, from the Roman times that they uh, aren't able to identify. They don't know whether it's a dinosaur or, you know, what it is. And uh, she sort of gets a hot tip that they may be on to something. So Sylvia comes by, takes the skull. On her way out the door, she passes by a crucifix. And she spews venom all over the crucifix. <laughs> so then Eve is in, in the room a little bit later on, and she touches the venom. And this is the first time that we are treated to one of these sort of lurid hallucinations. Mm. And I must say that that first one is super intense and weird and crazy and kind of fun in like how how much it shifts the tone of the movie all of a sudden well you know russell he's not the kind of director to set up the rules for his films at the very beginning <laughs> no, no no which you know it's kind of like a good thing for a director to do it's kind of what what we're expected it's kind of what we expect films to do is like they they tell us what we need to know at the beginning for sure. us to understand the film. But yeah, he'll just insert stuff like that half an hour into the film. And you're like, what the, <laughs> like what movie was I watching? Yeah. You know, it's like he, he, he's plays by these different rules. He, let's say he has no rules. He's only, he's got Russell rules. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Uh, prior to this, had either of you seen this movie before? I had not. No, no, this was my first no. time. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. But I, I had just recently watched Crimes of Passion, mm-hmm. which was the, a film that he made a couple of years prior. So I'm a, I'm a little familiar with his 80s oeuvre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and his, I've, I've seen style. Altered States a couple of times, which I actually think is quite good. Yeah, I've yeah. seen Altered States, too. Altered States, the, the hallucinations of this film kind of reminded me yeah. of Altered States. Yeah, for bit. sure. And if without the hallucinations... If you were to show someone who was familiar with Ken Russell's work without the hallucinations, they might be hard pressed to tell you that this was a Ken Russell film. Yeah, it, it does a, sort of a, obey its own internal logic, but yeah. that lurid, fantastic visual that seems to go counter to the rest of the film—that's very much a Ken Russell trope. And I mean, I some... watched The Devils the other day, and it's filled with moments like that. Yeah, there's yeah. something that, else that's too. Ken Russell. It's most Ken Russell. Yeah, <laughs> there's there is the the lurid R-rated um, sex violence mingling together, but there's also something else, uh, something that you'll find in his earlier, more musically oriented films. The the dance scene early in this film where the band is playing. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that whole scene, the way it's directed. I think it's also very Ken Russell because it's got this epileptic fit inducing rainbow lighting scheme that's just flashing and spinning and turns it into like a fun house and it's shot from a low angle and it reminded me of some parts of Tommy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Ken Russell, he's a, he loves, he loves sex. He loves perversion, but he's also a big music fan. A lot of his, 70s films were about composers too and um, while that scene is not like it's not R-rated like a lot of his signature moves it still I think is so much into color and and light and sensation that it's it's typical of his work yeah yeah. Um, you were talking about the pacing of this and I think it's it's interesting 
both of you have only seen this the one time, and right. I think if you ever decide to watch it a second time, you sort of have an understanding of what to expect. The pacing, there's a familiarity to the pacing. Sure. Uh, it, there's a dreamlike quality to the entirety of this film. Mm-hmm. And they have dream sequences and they have uh, psychedelic sequences. But one of the things that I find quite fascinating, especially that I noted this time around, is that the editing in time is completely illogical. Huge gaps of time are mm-hmm. missing and no one seems to react to that. So they'll say oh. they're going to do something and then it's suddenly done. Yeah. Uh, and in some ways, this could be seen as very sloppy editing. You know, like there's a story, it progresses, and there's jumps from one point to another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think I think this is very intentional on, on Russell's part because it works within the story. Like I said, it has an internal logic that yeah, yeah. I actually found quite impressive looking at it trying to think how you two would be uh, <laughs> looking at it. You know, it's mm-hmm, nice sure. to watch it, not with a familiar comfort. Like, it's kind of a comfortable movie for me. Yeah. But it's neat to watch it knowing that someone else is going to be seeing it for the first time or, or want to, you know, look at it with a critical eye. Yeah, yeah. And I can think of one of those those moments where time didn't really make sense to me. And I did find it to be a little bit sort of like, you know, oftentimes that kind of thing really annoys me in a movie, but in this movie, it didn't seem to bother me as much. Uh, and that was when they were descending into the cave and Eve wanted to stay behind and mm-hmm. uh, she didn't want to go deeper into the cave. And they were like, sure, you can stay behind, whatever. And she then encounters Sylvia up in a tree who says, I chased a cat up here. Now the cat is gone and I can't seem to get down. Um, and, and, and thus follows a sort of seduction sequence of sorts. Um, of which there are many in this film. Of which, there, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, there's like wall-to-wall seductions <laughs> in this movie. And, uh, and then, like, I had understood that, yeah, they had encountered each other out there close to the cave in the field, they had gone back to Sylvia's estate. They had had the time for Sylvia to do some tanning and, uh, <laughs> and then get up from that. And, uh, and then they, they had their conversation. And then so, uh, Eve makes a phone call back to the other three. And they're at home. So it was this weird kind of thing where you, you kind of felt like time, not much time had passed. But enough time had passed for them to go into the caves, fully explore the caves, come out of the caves, go all the way back home, and be sitting around all together conversing and having drinks, you know, tea and and whatnot, for Eve to call and them to not even be worried about it. They're like, It's not like they were like, well, she was supposed to be home when we got home, and she's not. It, 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 just, so, it just felt very unusual. So... Let me ask you, Drew. Uh, does that scene, does that scene strike you as something like that's kind of like Ken Russell toying with us or intentionally playing with our perception of time? Let's say that this film had no supernatural element to it, and it was just a bucolic period piece. Sure. And something like that had happened. You would say that is absolutely bad editing, <laughs> but. 
it happens so much in the film. Yeah. That that kind of unusual. There's an Alice in Wonderland feeling to it. You also have Ken Russell's playing with religion. You know, you've got yeah, yeah. Um, Sylvia Marsh in the tree talking to Eve. Yes. I mean, right. Yeah, know, yeah, that's, yeah. There's there's nothing subtle about. This, yeah, no, not at know? all. Not at all. Uh, so I watching this, I, you know, sort of forgotten. It's been about two years since I'd seen it. The time lapses, I was like, huh, that's really odd. I, he has to be doing this on purpose, right? I mean, he he, he would would have to. There are scenes where it's night out and they have a brief conversation and then suddenly it's day out, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. And apparently four or five hours have passed, even though there is no evidence of that other than the, the changing of light outside. Yeah. And I think mm. that... Russell, this is so further in his career that this is something that he has to be doing on purpose. Sure. I, I, unless, you know, he just wanted to get this film done. But I get the feeling that almost everybody involved with this movie uh, was having quite a bit of fun with it. I think they were mostly in on the joke. Well, you know, this movie is full of very uh, intentional details that, yeah. uh, you know, once you once you sort sort of notice them all, you can't help but think you're in the hands of a master. Not to say that Ken Russell is one of the greatest directors, but he clearly has so much attention to the the making of his films and to all the details. Whether it's the crossword puzzle that has the shape of a winding serpent on it, or you know other sorts of snakes and ladders, snakes and ladders. Um, you know, it's like. There's so much intentionality in in this movie that you can't help but think that the whole thing is intentional, and that's why I'm keen to agree with your interpretation, Drew, because it's like there's nothing accidental about the films of Ken Russell based on what I've seen. I mean, it's all they may be something that he discovered during the making of the film, but it's still in there for a reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, symbolism plays such a huge part in this. Right. You know, yeah. There's, there's a lot symbolism to too. talk about iconography, yeah. especially religious iconography. Yep. Mm-hmm. And if you were to, you know, in the 80s, we had a lot of picture books of movies where it would just take key scenes. If you were to take just single shots of different scenes in this movie, I think you could have an idea of the, the plot, but you'd be able to see those details that that you're talking about. Um snakes and ladders you know we don't even call it shoot we call it shoots and ladders over here so it's definitely (laughs) there's a a, a britishness to it Mm. uh, as well that i i quite i quite like um something else that i like about this film is the score which there are three distinct types of scoring in this film that really stand out Mm -hmm. there's the synth that 80s synth score that's very reminiscent of say a john carpenter yeah film like halloween that were kind of repetitive beat that lets you know something dangerous is about to happen yeah mm-hmm. uh, and and then I, I i just feel like it's comforting uh for film from the 80s you know it just kind of embraces you yeah it feels but a little bit like those like this... like the tangerine dream scores mm-hmm. that are kind of like atm- more atmospheric than they are indi- you know indicating how to feel or, or what to think, you know? Well, like, um, like his editing in with time, Mm. the music 
kind of tells you what you should be thinking, but it's not necessarily synced up with what you're looking at. It's almost mm. like it's jumping ahead uh, and kind of con- trying to confuse the senses a little bit. Uh, again, playing with that dream, like there is a very 80s saxophone uh, <laughs> yeah. that plays that I was trying to figure out the best way to describe how that saxophone makes me feel. <laughs> and most of the saxophone is played during these quote unquote seduction sequences with Lady Marsh. Yeah. And here's what I make it feel like. It is both sexy and melancholy, and it makes me think of film noir where the gumshoe is sitting behind his desk right before the leggy blonde walks in, and you know that leggy blonde is going to be his downfall. Like, all of that is encapsulated in that that soundtrack, even though that is in almost no way what's happening on the screen. Sure, sure. Um, though... I will say that Hugh Grant's um, Lord Dampton is possibly the greatest detective who has ever lived because (laughs) he makes logical jumps, huge uh, intuitive jumps that that are based on next to nothing that (laughs) just moves the plot forward. You know, this could have been this could have been serialized where they were looking at clues and they were doing the research. But it's the moment they get any new information, they immediately leap over the next 10 steps to go to what is the obvious conclusion you know yeah no yeah. no better example of that in the film than the fact that they go hmm she's involved in a type of snake cult maybe if i play this b-side of an album of moroccan belly dancing music yeah it will summon her like a snake there is no evidence whatsoever that says that that should work but no. it is a key plot to the film. Well, yeah, and it's almost, it almost, uh, the film almost cheats in that way because earlier in the film, we see this young Boy Scout or whatever the, the English equivalent of that is, um, who gets picked up by Lady Sylvia and seduced by Lady Sylvia in a sort of ridiculously oversexed scene. Like, it's very, very, it's probably the most revealing scene in the whole movie just about mm-hmm. and uh and in that he plays what he calls the mouth harp which of course is the harmonica and wait i believe he called it the mouth organ did he call it the mouth organ yeah which is not i mean there's a lot I, of entendres in this film yeah when I was oh yeah in high school somebody dared me to watch a movie called mouth organ and it was not about harmonicas <laughs> i'll bet it wasn't uh but yeah he plays the mouth organ and uh, she is immediately drawn to him dancing and then snatches it out of his hand when he stops playing and says, we need to put this away. So it gives us, the viewers, a clue as to what's going on. But the whole seduction of this little Boy Scout is outside of the knowledge or view of anybody else in the film. Hugh Grant's character shows up immediately after this, but he doesn't deduce anything or at least cinematically we don't see him deduce anything about that you know that the a young boy could have seduced her with the harmonica but he then later in the film makes that huge logical leap oh i'll just play some snake charming music and she'll be helpless Mm. and it's like it's like the ken russell is cueing us the viewers into 
this secret, but the character isn't cued into that, <laughs> clued into that secret. So, yeah, it is this massive logical leap that he makes. Well, I know we're all we seem to be fans of Ken Russell and we're praising his intentionality and, and his decision making, but I will say, ninety three minutes is a pretty short time for a film, uh, let alone a film that's adapted from a novel. So it's possible, and maybe Drew could speak to this, that the work print of this film was much longer and included a lot more information that was then whittled down to a scant 93 minutes, and therefore there are some gaps in the narrative. And Ken Russell, Ken Russell just thought, well, fuck it. I'm, this movie's called Lair of the White Worm. Have you seen the worm in this movie? It's like, <laughs> it's not a big deal. He's not concerned about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're saying you you, uh, you get what's on the tin, right? I think I can smell what he's cooking, basically. Right. right. <laughs> sure. sure. I wish that I could give you some great insights to the history of this film. <laughs> Sadly, no copy that I've ever owned had any kind of making of. Or commentary. I've never read a book on the the life and times and and filmography of Ken Russell. So I don't know if there's a, a bigger print of a longer print of this or if the original script is is what it is i feel like there's so many elements that feel like sloppy filmmaking if it just one of them had been put in the film but because all of it i think he this is this came apart um came in part after uh, gothic which he made much right. earlier right was so successful in the home box office that he immediately was given a four-picture deal, and this is one of the movies that he made mm -hmm. during that. Yeah, um, this is essentially a B movie. I mean, this is yeah. this is very much a B movie, yeah, and this no is not question. the kind of thing that you would think someone like Ken Russell would make, because like many of Ken Russell's films, this is not only directed by him but produced by him. He wrote the screenplay. Yeah, you know, like this is this is something that Ken Russell obviously wanted to do but I'm not 100% sure where the impetus for that came from mm -hmm. um, sure. it is a it is a horror movie but I feel in many ways it's played like a comedy and oh, unlike yes. say yeah. the devils I mean, there's there's some actually very fantastic comedic timing um, you know the the um, Dion and snake god ritual that's interrupted by the doorbell yeah. or the dramatic fight sequence, which is interrupted by Hugh Grant tripping over a drums kit and actually hearing the snare going, could you, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, every lascivious line by, uh, Hugh Grant's, um, Butler Stratford John. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, you know, it's such played for Hugh, this slow panning close up on his eyebrows. And he's kind of getting this glistening when he's talking about belly dancers from the Orient. Yeah. I mean, this is a funny film. Um, and almost all of the scares are jump scares, usually with the appearance of his um, uh, psychedelic kind of imagery. Sure. Let me ask you this, guys. If, you, if money was not an object, would you, if I gave you, say, two or three hours, know where to buy a mongoose and a hand grenade? Like if no. you, you know, if if in two or three hours, could you go right now and find a mongoose and a hand grenade? No. You want a mongoose? I get you a mongoose. Right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what color it would be. You, you could get me a mongoose. Right, maybe a ruddy color, kind of earthy, earthy tone. Because you know, uh, a very important, two very important aspects of this film are determined on Peter Capaldi's uh, Angus Flint 
pulling pulling a mongoose out of his kilt uh, and yep. pulling a hand grenade out of his kilt. Yep. Uh, neither of which objects um, he was shown. There was no Chekhov's mongoose. You no. Know, there's no Chekhov's hand grenade. Where did he get these? We don't know. No, and the right? hand grenade, curiously enough, starts a fire that is large enough to be seen <laughs> across the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> One hand grenade again, dropped into a just... pit <laughs> starts that kind of fire. Right. And again, you just have to embrace this logic that is going on with this film and kind of just it's almost like a river. You just it, it's not flowing the way it should. But if you just set sail on it and just take it, you're going to get to where you need to go. Sure. Sure. Well, yeah, but it's yeah, I really liked it's so funny because, you know, I, I remember liking this film. I've seen it many times, maybe yeah. not as much as Zardoz, which, by the way, <laughs> I was having a conversation with my father recently and I mentioned Zardoz and he says, Oh, it was the first science fiction film I remember watching with you. <laughs> so I'm assuming I was nine or 10. So That's you amazing. try to imagine. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Right. Trying to make sense of that as a nine year old. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Well, I, I had 30 tries to, to yeah, yeah. get to where I got. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but I, I think I may have enjoyed this film more this time looking at it with a critical eye and maybe having watched several other Ken Russell films um, in preparation for it than I ever have. Yeah. Uh, because I, I think there's, there's something very clever about this film uh, in the way it's, everything is portrayed. It, it's kind of, it shouldn't work and it does. Yeah. Um, and I know that you were saying that it was boring. Uh, and I think I gotta have to say that that's gotta be intentional because I'm sure you both noticed that, there are some incredibly detailed phone conversations that happen mm -hmm. where there's information that is given to the audience that has no relevance to the plot whatsoever, but it is very similar to what a realistic phone call might be. You know, it's, it's very yeah. not typical phone conversations. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know how much more can be said. I think it is, a fascinatingly weird film. It is unquestionably a B movie. Um, it is, I mean, so much of it looks cheap and, uh, dated in so many ways. And yet I still found myself fascinated by it throughout. You know, it, it's not one of those films. Like I, I totally agree with you, Phil, that there are points that the, the pacing doesn't really work. And I think that there's some, some of those long conversations you're talking about, Drew, are really drawn out and kind of, kind of clunky, uh, in the middle of the mm, film. Yeah. And, and as you were saying, Phil, if there's a longer cut of this, uh, I, I would bet that it's 100% conversations. There's two <laughs> people talking to each other and, and nothing really happening. Um, yeah, there's a new there's a new short film that just came out at the end of January, and it's linked to on the, the IMDb page for this film. It's called Cutting for Ken, and it's a nine minute documentary, which consists of the editor for this film, Peter Davies, reminiscing about working on it with Ken Russell. Oh, well, I bet that's. Interesting. I don't know how it's possible to see this movie, but it's only <laughs> nine minutes long. <laughs> what can you, I'm, what can I'm you possibly gonna... say? Yeah, I'm gonna go hunt it down right now. Immediately, I mean, try and find it. it. Sounds yeah. fascinating. Yeah, but I it's for Ken. Uh, yet again, Drew, you have brought us a, uh, <laughs> a fascinatingly strange film that I had not seen, uh, and I thank you for that, uh, as I always do. Yeah. 
Um, this is this is one of those movies I, that I always saw the cover art for, and I was like, that looks like garbage, because the cover yeah, art is was, really terrible for this movie. <laughs> I was just gonna say, I remember being a kid and seeing newspaper advertising for this movie, yeah. but here it's taken me nearly thirty years to actually see the freaking thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that that is our podcast uh, on the layer of the white worm. Uh, Drew, thanks again for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm. I have no doubt you'll be back uh, before too long. Hopefully, it <laughs> won't be a year this time. Uh, <laughs> please join us for our next podcast when we'll be, we will be talking about the new release, Life. It's a the new science fiction flick uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal Could, and Ryan Reynolds. Couldn't they come up with a better title than Life? Well, they're I mean, discovering extraterrestrial life. What do you want to call it? Uh, life. Don't name it after uh, Eddie Murphy. Martin falls. Vehicle. Finds a way. <laughs> life. Yeah, life does find a way. Indeed, it does. Dino droppings. <laughs> Thanks so much, everybody, and we will catch you next time. See you later.